Good morning. You want to open your books or Bibles to Nehemiah 1? We're going to read 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jer Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive to my, to your, and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. Peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. All right, thank you, Rick. Well, church, we are officially diving in this morning to Nehemiah, so let's pray. Lord, we love how that you work in us. You're, you're, you never stop you're continually at work and you're shaping us and sanctifying us and the, the primary tool of transforming our lives is the word of God wielded by the spirit of God who takes the word deep to the very depths of who we are and you bring about transformation little by little. And so Lord, may the truths of this book, Lord, be implanted in us so richly, so deeply that our lives at the, at the end of our time in this book, a few months from now, that our lives will look a little different, a little more like Jesus. So speak this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get to work. So it's interesting to me how certain words and catchphrases find their way into popular culture. They kind of show up and everybody's saying them. And, and so, you know, in our day, it's, you know, I hear the kids saying, oh, that's fire. That's fire. It's, you know, if something's really great, oh, that's fire. And in the 70s, when I was in school, we had phrases like, we'll catch you on the flip side. Or let's get down and boogie. <laughs> My buddy Wayne Langhorst, when he would pick me, he had a, he had a car I didn't, he would pick me up. And he was always in a hurry for some reason. I don't know why, but he was always in a hurry. And he showed up at my house. And he, Come on, G, let's boogie. Come on, G, let's boogie. So boogie was like a, a word that was just everywhere in culture. In the 80s, you know, you had bodacious and gnarly and gag me with a spoon. And, but these, these words, these phrases come in. But there was a cultural phrase. It was actually a question that was very prominent. I believe it was when I was in high school in the 70s. But if you wanted to appear cool and kind of cultivate a persona of being aloof and, and so on, you would say, ask me if I care. 
right? You, you know, Wayne would come over and say, gee, there's a great new movie out, uh, you know, Smokey and the Bandit, <laughs> whatever, 70s movie. And let's go see it. And yeah, ask me if I care because I was appearing cool. Or gee, there's, there's people in Barnum. Barnum was a, a town five miles from Moose Lake and we were rivals, you know, with everything. Gee, there's kids talking trash about you over in Barnum. Uh, ask me if I care. Nehemiah was not trying to cultivate some persona or trying to appear cool and strong and aloof. Nehemiah actually cared. He cared. He cared especially for the city of God, Jerusalem, the people of God, and the glory of God. And so there are four ways in our chapter this morning that Nehemiah demonstrates that he cares. So as we begin, I want to ask you, do you care? Do you care about the things that God cares about? So I'm relying on Warren Wiersbe's outline this morning. The points that I'm using are his. So I want to give credit to where credit's due. It's just I couldn't come up with, I couldn't beat him. So uh, point number one, Nehemiah cared enough to ask. He cared enough to ask. Verse one, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, meaning palace, fortified palace, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, that's where Jerusalem is, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah, he begins by letting us know that his dad was Hakaliah, which then differentiates Nehemiah from, there's two other Nehemiahs in the Bible. So we know that, oh, this is that. He's Hakaliah's boy. Uh, we know which Nehemiah it is. He tells us the month, Chislev, that's, that's mid-November to mid-December. He tells us the year, it's the 20th year, meaning the 20th year of Artaxerxes, uh, which would put it at 444 B.C. So we know uh, the month, we know the year, we know the city where Nehemiah lives, Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire. Susa was a great city. We know that not only did he live in Susa, but he lived in the citadel or the palace of Artaxerxes, a, a big fortified palace. That's where he lived. He lived in a pagan country, with a, in a pagan culture, with a pagan king, in a, and a pagan government. Nehemiah worked for that government. Now, Nehemiah tells us his position in the government at the end of the chapter. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer. So that doesn't sound impressive. Is that guy that walks around carrying cups. Um, well, it was a little more than that. Uh, this was the guy who would have to taste the wine before the king could drink the wine. He would have to eat a little bit of the food before the king could eat the food. And so it was, it was quite normal in those days for a king to get whacked, right? To, to get knocked off by somebody. There was always those kind of things going on. In fact, Artaxerxes killed uh, the king prior to him to take the throne. And so this kind of intrigue was happening all the time. And poisoning the wine or the food was one of the most discreet and, and effective ways to off a king. And so the position of cupbearer was crucial. The king would be served the wine. Nehemiah would drink first. Everyone would stare at Nehemiah for a couple minutes, see if he was okay. And after a few minutes, he's like, okay, king, go ahead. And he'd start drinking, right? So uh, any... Uh, time that Nehemiah still had a pulse at the end of the day. Well, that was a good day at work, right? You're still breathing. So, so Nehemiah was much more than an expendable employee. He wasn't some low-level guy. In fact, the cupbearer to the king was a position of great responsibility, great privilege and prestige. 
He had to be a guy who uh, served directly in the presence of the king every single day. He had to be a, he would only be chosen if he was a good looking guy, cultured, educated, able to converse with the king, able to advise the king. Because he had constant access to the king, he was a man of great influence. When the important people, the dignitaries, the leaders from other parts of the world came, Nehemiah would be there relating to them, serving them, talking with them. Nehemiah would have been wealthy. He would have been famous within the Persian kingdom. Everybody would know who Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was Jewish wasn't Persian, which I think also gives us a clue as to his character. To, to elevate a Jew to that position. Of course, Daniel was elevated, you remember, when he was taken in the first uh, exiling of the Jews. Daniel, they looked for the best, the brightest, the best looking, all of that. And so, Nehemiah was Jewish, but he never lived in Israel. He never visited Jerusalem. And it was a, a little more than 160 years earlier that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, invaded Israel and took Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Benny, and uh, if you're a VeggieTales fan, and, um, and brought them back to Babylon to serve in his court. Well, Nebuchadnezzar would invade two more times. And the final time, he would destroy Jerusalem, which Jerusalem, by the way, is the most destroyed city in the history of planet Earth. 118 times it's been destroyed. And so this was one of those times, the third time Nebuchadnezzar would invade Israel, and he would also destroy Solomon's temple. And so as prophesied, the Jews would live in exile for 70 years in Babylon until the Persians overthrew Babylon. In 539 BC, a Persian king named Cyrus took power and in 536 or so, he issued a decree saying the Jews now who had been living in exile for 70 years, they were free to go back to their homeland. There was maybe two to three million Jews at that point. And Cyrus, as prophesied by Isaiah, by the way, 100 plus years previous, Cyrus issued the decree and 50,000 Jews, and we know this from Ezra, 50,000 Jews went back to the homeland, 50,000 out of two to three million, very small number. For 70 years, the Jews were living in Babylon. They were building homes. They were told to by Jeremiah. When, you go, when you're in exile in Babylon, build homes, plant gardens, get your kids married off, have kid, live life, man. And so they did. So when, when they were free to return to their homeland, a lot of them were like, yeah, I'm good. Kind of like my life here. So Zerubbabel led the 50,000, they went to Jerusalem, which was an absolute dump at this point. And they began laying the foundation for a new temple, that's what they started with. And after two years, they got the, the foundation laid for the temple, but because of constant attacks from the, the peoples that were in the land, Samaritans and others, they abandoned the work after two years. And so it would be 20 years before the temple was finally completed in 516 BC. So Jerusalem, however, was still a mess. The wall was still in ruins. The place was a dump. It remained a dump for 60 more years when Nehemiah's brother went to visit Jerusalem with some other guys, came back to Susa, the capital, and got with his brother, and it was probably a day like any other day, but it turned out to be a turning point in Nehemiah's life when his brother got back from Jerusalem. Listen, huge doors swing on relatively small hinges. It was just another day when, when Moses was just out tending the sheep, but on that day, he would see a bush that, that was burning, but it, it wasn't seemingly being consumed by the fire. And as he went to investigate, well, you know the story. His life 
would never be the same. David was a, was a kid tending the sheep like any other day, but on that day, he was called home to discover the prophet Samuel waiting for him with some oil. David's life changed that day. I was youth pastor at Calvary Chapel Downey in Southern California. My brother Jeff and his wife Christina were were just planning towards, praying towards moving to Missouri. Jeff had been teaching in the, uh, in the school uh, at, at Calvary Downey, and they felt like God was calling them to move with some friends to Missouri who had this big plot of land, and they were gonna, they were gonna make a discipleship center and a mission-sending center, and, and so they were gearing up for that. Now, this was 1992. The Soviet Union had collapsed and fallen apart. And Bill Bright from Campus Crusade invited the Calvary Chapels, hey, listen, the door's open in Russia now to go in to preach the gospel and plant churches. And our church decided we want in on that. And so I was in on all the conversations and the meetings, being one of the pastors, you know, planning and strategizing, like, who's going to go, you know, and, and all that kind of thing. So it was just an ordinary day. I'm coming home from work, from church, and, and Jeff and Christina and Pam and I, we had houses that were right next to each other. It was on a, you know, in, in that area, of, we lived in Bellflower, there was four houses that were, you know, each one behind each other. They would go four deep. And so Jeff and Christina lived in the last one, Pam and I in the third one, the one right next to theirs, and I'm walking down the drive, and I'm getting close to my house, and I see Jeff and Christina, and we say, hey, how you doing? And I said something like, hey, you guys ought to consider going to Russia. And that's all I said. I didn't say it with any drama in my voice. It was just like, hey, you guys ought to think about going to Russia. I didn't know it then, but that simple little sentence went off in them like a bomb. <laughs> what? Later that year, they moved to Russia with their three children, and they would be there for 12 years, pastoring the church in Vladimir that we started through evangelism and would plant more in the region. It was a day like any other day. Big doors swing on very relatively small hinges. It was an ordinary day when my pastor called me into his office and said, and I, I was, you know, uh, I, what was I doing back then? I don't even remember what I was doing. And he said, Greg, would you pray about becoming our youth pastor? That was so out of left field. It was so not on my radar, not even close. I did not see it coming, but it changed my life. That little comment phrased my, it changed my life. I would, I would become, I didn't know I had a, a gift to teach the Bible or that I would love teaching the Bible. Big doors swing on small hinges. I, I wouldn't be here today had he not asked that question. Why would Nehemiah ask his brother about a struggling remnant of a few thousand people nearly a thousand miles away? Uh, you know, after all, Nehemiah worked for the king. He was in the presence of the king and the queen on a daily basis. He was wealthy. He was successful. Why would he even ask about those people a thousand miles away? Nehemiah lived in an impressive city, the capital city of the Persian Empire. He lived in a city where he could get whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. He had a great life. It wasn't his fault uh, that the, the Jews who went back to Jerusalem were having a hard time. I mean, it wasn't his fault that that was going on. Why would he even ask? Simple. Because he cared. He cared, and his life would change that day. 
He asked his brother Hannah and I, how, how are God's people doing and how is God's city doing? How, how are the Jews faring over there and how's the city of Jerusalem? I just, just let me know. You know, they didn't have, there was no TikTok, no Instagram, no Facebook. There was no, no info to be gotten. So he's got people who were there. He can get the straight scoop. How are the people? How's the city? Hannah and I said, the people are not good. They're living in, in constant misery and frustration and shame. They are poor, they are despised by all the surrounding peoples, and the city, this, let me tell you, the city, the wall is in ruins, the gates are burned, Jerusalem looks like a, like a war zone, it looks like a dump. The people are miserable, and they are continually taunted and mocked and attacked by the surrounding peoples. That's how it's going over there, Nehemiah. The condition of a people is directly related to the condition of the city in which they live. In the ancient world, a city without walls was a city completely open and vulnerable to its enemies. And so they, there was no defense, there was no protection at all. An unwalled city was always a dump with nothing valuable in it. If there was anything valuable in it, in an unwalled city, it would be stolen. That's just the way it went because there was no defense to stop the thief, to stop the attacker. Listen, the modern day equivalent of a wall in our time is the police force. We don't have walled cities in the modern age at least not in the Western world. In the cities where you have a well-funded, well-trained police force, you have generally happy, safe citizens who can conduct their business in relative safety. So you have nice buildings and beautiful shops and stores in these cities that have a well-funded, well-trained police force. With the cities that don't have a well-funded, well-trained police force, what about them? What's happening in California where you can steal up to $950 worth of merchandise on any given day and it's a misdemeanor. You'll go home at the end of the day. What happens when there isn't sufficient police presence in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles? Smash and grabs. People smash through the jewelry counter and just start filling up bags full of stuff and they run off. My daughter Kelsey and her husband Eric were in San Francisco just a couple of months ago on a, on a work trip and they were out in the middle of San Francisco somewhere by a park and people everywhere, middle of the day, broad daylight, and a guy goes up to a car, smashes the windows of the car, and starts taking everything out of the car. And there's people everywhere, and nobody's doing anything about it. And they're talking to some people going like, "Is what's happening here? Oh, well, they're just stealing stuff out of the car. Well, shouldn't somebody call the police? Oh, they can call, but it won't do anything. What's in we do? No, nothing you can really do. What happens when the walls are in ruins? The people are in misery. They're in constant fear, they have constant stress, they never know when they're gonna be robbed or brutalized, businesses leave, the city becomes a dump with nothing valuable in it. Nehemiah cared enough to ask. He cared enough to ask. That simple question and the answer that came would be the hinge that a huge door swung on in Nehemiah's life. It would be the doorway into the great adventure of Nehemiah's life. He cared enough to ask. Secondly, number two, Nehemiah cared enough to weep. He cared enough to weep. Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah was 
was so impacted by the news of the terrible conditions of God's people in God's city that he, he just had to, he had to sit down, he had to just kind of gather himself and, and he just began to weep. And, and, and he prayed, it just emotionally, it hit him, it overwhelmed him. Listen, before God can do a work through someone, he has to do a work in someone. When God does a work in us, we begin to care about the things that God cares about. We get less bent on our own comfort and pleasure and ease of life, and we get more fired up about the glory of God and the condition of people and so on. I often pray, there's, a cert, there's certain things that I, that, that I pray, it's a continuing theme in, in my prayer life. And typically in the mornings, I will pray something like, Lord, help me to see with your eyes today. Help me to think with your mind. Help me to feel with your heart. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says that we have the mind of Christ. We have it. In John 4, when the, the people that the, the Samaritan town, uh, uh, you know, the Samaritan, the woman at the well, and that whole story in John 4, she goes back into the town, tells them about this guy Jesus. They're coming out to the well where Jesus is. The disciples of Jesus are just showing back up from trying to get food, and the people are coming out, and Jesus says to his disciples, hey, lift up your eyes, for the fields are white unto harvest. In other words, when you look at the, you see these people that are coming towards us right now. You see those people. I want you to see them like I see them. I want you to feel for them like I feel for them. That's what was happening with Nehemiah. He was feeling what God felt about the condition of his people and the condition of his city. Jesus was touched by the condition of his people and by what would happen to his city, Jerusalem, in the not too distant future. In Luke chapter 19, the Bible says that when Jesus, Luke 19, 41, when Jesus drew near to the city, he saw the city and he wept over it. Like Nehemiah, Jesus was overtaken with emotion and he said, would that you, even you had known the day that the things that would make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The days are gonna come upon you. And I can just see Jesus seeing this in the future in his mind. When your enemies are gonna set up a barricade around, surround you, hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children and, and will not leave one stone upon another because you didn't know the time of your visit that I am here, God, the Son, am with you, the Messiah. And he's weeping for the people. He's weeping for the city. Like Nehemiah did. Do you care enough to weep? Well, thirdly, Nehemiah cared enough to pray. He cared enough to pray, verse four, or verse five, rather. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive, your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you, and, and day and night before the people, for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them through you, though your outcasts are in the innermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make their name dwell, for they are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Now, this is, this is one of about a dozen or so prayers in the book of Nehemiah. Prayer is essential to accomplishing anything that God is calling us to. Now, you can accomplish things that God isn't calling you to without prayer. You can be super successful in stuff that God's not calling you to without prayer. But if you are going to accomplish what God calls you to, you have to pray. Prayer is essential to accomplishing anything that God calls us to. Yes, we need to plan and strategize, and we will see Nehemiah is, he's an administrator, he's a leader. He knows how to put things in order and how to, you know, act in wisdom and discretion. And, and this building project that he's gonna lead up, we're gonna see him as an incredible leader. But according to chapter two, verse one, Nehemiah prayed for about four months before he acted. Four months of prayer and fasting from food. Nobody didn't fast for four months, but, <laughs> you know, fasting from food. We're familiar with fast food. It's the fasting from food that we're not quite as acquainted with. There was only one uh, mandatory fast in Jewish life, by the way. That's, that's atonement. They would fast on the Day of Atonement. So this was just from his own free will. I'm gonna do this, man, I'm seeking God. I'm serious about seeking God, about his city and about his people. Well, his prayer contains at least three elements. Let me just share those with you briefly. First of all, it starts with worship. Verse five, oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. He begins with worship, extolling God's character. God, you're the God of heaven. In, in other words, the God that, that is above it all, the God who created it all, the visible things, the invisible things. Worship reorients us to who God is. And that's always a great way to start prayer. It reminds us who we are praying to. It also shrinks our looming problems and challenges down to their proper size. I often say to people, especially aspiring leaders, you know, most everybody like to make mountain out of molehills. It's kind of a natural tendency of a human being. But good leaders make molehills out of mountains. What seems to be insurmountable problems and giant obstacles shrink down to their proper size when we worship. In Acts chapter four, Peter and John are called before the corrupt high priest Caiaphas and his goons. Caiaphas was literally the head of a crime family that got, got rich off of God's people by gaming the religious system. They exploited God's people by doing things like for the God's people who had come from other countries to worship three times a year in Jerusalem and they would change their money. Caiaphas would charge exorbitant amounts of exchange, and so he would get rich off of the exchange. He would, he would make it so that people had to buy his animals for the sacrifices that would be at jacked up prices. And so Caiaphas was, you know, essentially Vito Corleone in the religious world. And it's no wonder why Caiaphas was bent on seeing Jesus killed because Jesus was bad for his business, especially when he came into the temple and started driving out all the money changers with a whip. Business was not good for a while for Caiaphas because of Jesus. P 
Peter and John are brought before Caiaphas and his goons. They are threatened to with an inch of their... You stop preaching in that name. You stop what you're doing. Peter says, well, you judge whether we should obey God rather than man. And they got threatened some more, and they left. And Peter and John went back to their group, the Christians, you know, the first Christians, the beginning of Acts. They go back to their group, and, and everybody knows that they've been called into Caiaphas and all that kind of stuff. And so, so they go back. They tell the story of what happened, you know, everything that happened with Caiaphas and all of that. And then they prayed. And the first words of the prayer that came out of their mouth, Acts 4.24, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth, earth and the sea and everything in them. That's who we're praying to right now. Yeah, we just, we just came from Vito Corleone's house with his goons and they threatened us to with an insult. But oh Lord, sovereign Lord, you're in control of every single thing and every single detail and every person on this. You created everything. Immediately, that thing that seems so huge, we've got this crime family against us, they're out together. This thing that seems so huge and daunting is shrinking to size. Starting our prayers with worship, acknowledging who we are praying to, it immediately begins to impact our perspective. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Worship. That's worship. Not only worship is in Nehemiah's prayer, but confession. Verse 6, I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my Father's house have sinned. Confession of sin is, is one of the most powerful and, and, and basic, maybe basic isn't the right word, but, but it, is the, it, is, is the most, it is the simplest and most powerful act of humility. It, re, it realigns us with God. It's a statement of truth. Confession of sin is a truth statement. God, I did this. What does the truth do for God's people? It sets us free, doesn't it? And so sin brings discord into our relationship with God. Our lives get out of tune with God, like a guitar that's out of tune, right? And so to get a guitar in tune, well, there's tuners now, but it used to be where you would tune one string of the guitar to the other string of the guitar. And so you could do that using harmonics. That's where you don't actually press the string down. You just touch it, plug it, and it, it makes a harmonic tone. Or you can press it down on the fret or whatever. And then you press the string next to it on the same note and if they are out of tune, the waves are going to be like this, and it's going to sound discordant. It's going to be, ugh. And you tune it up, and all of a sudden, those sound waves come back into alignment. That's what happens when we confess our sin. We're being brought back into alignment with God. To confess means to, it's a compound word, to say this, the same as God. That's what it means, to speak the same as God. So I agree, God, I sinned, I lied. God, I sinned, I sold. God, I sinned, I, whatever it is. And, and you are tuning back up to the truth. Well, worship, confession, and thirdly, reminding. Now this is interesting to me. Um, Verse 8, he, he, Nehemiah says to God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Like, God, does God have a memory issue? No. But apparently, God likes to be reminded. He likes to be reminded by his people about the things that he said. When the kids were little, you parents know that could be annoying. 
<laughs> hey, Dad, hey, Dad, you said we could go get ice cream. Hey, Dad, hey, Dad, you said you'd take us to the mall. Hey, Dad, hey, Dad, you said, you said. And, you know, because we're sinful, we can get petty and be bugged, you know. God likes to be bugged like that. He likes to be reminded of what he said. Not because he forgot what he said, but because by reminding, of, by reminding God, we are actually reminding ourselves of what God promised Yes, oh God, you said, yes, you said, you promised this. So, so, so God, remember your promise. Your promises are sure. They are for us in the New Testament. They are yes and amen in Christ. So we stand on them. We plead them. We plead the promises. That's old language, what the old timers used to say. We plead the promises of God and God loves it. He's not in danger of not keeping them. And he, yes, he remembers them but he loves it when you bring them to him. It's an awesome way to pray. It causes us to get deeper into what the promises actually are. When, you, when, you, when you're struggling, Christian, with, with condemnation, because man, you've been screwing up big time, you've been having a hard week or month or year, you've been just struggling in your personal walk with the Lord, and you are condemned, because you did this, or you've been, you know, been plagued by dark thoughts, or lustful thought, whatever. And you just go to a verse in the Bible. In that case, 1 John 1, 9, most of us, at least many of us know that verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if I take that and I'm in a, in a bad week or a bad month or whatever where I'm struggling with just dark stuff, sin stuff, and I, and I get that promise, and I, God, here's what you say in your word. Here's your promise, and I'm reminding you, Lord, of this. And it dawns on me, Lord, you are faithful and just. That means, Lord, you would be unfaithful and you would be unjust if you did not cleanse me of all my sin. That, Lord, your character, the work of Christ, is so sufficient and so complete that, that my sins right now that I think are so terrible that I can't seem to get free, that, those, that you would be unjust to condemn me for these terrible things that I've done. And all of a sudden, I, I'm pleading the promises of God to God, and whoa. I'm beginning to get the realization and the experience of, yes, of course I'm forgiven. Shut up, Satan. Of course I'm forgiven for that thing or those things or whatever because I have the promises of God pleading his promises, standing on his promises. Well, Nehemiah cared enough to ask. He cared enough to weep. Cared enough to pray. Lastly, he cared enough to get involved. <laughs> Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man meaning Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah asked for success, which obviously means he's ready to get involved, <laughs> right? He hears about God's people in Jerusalem. He hears about the city. It's a dump. It's ruins. And, and he's overcome with emotion. He's praying. And at a certain point, he's going, I'm going. I'm not just going to be a prayer support person for this project. I'm going to be the leader of this project. This is the ministry that God is calling me to. Now, how is that going to happen? He is working for the king of the, the great empire of the world at that point, the Persian Empire. How, how is Nehemiah going to ask for, oh, about 12 years off? Uh, you know, would you like to ask your boss, hey, can I have 12 years off? I'll see you. Uh, you know, in 2035. And not only that, but I also, can you give me the credit card to your personal lumber building? 
How is that going to happen? Prayer for something will create a heart in you for that something, which then will draw you to get involved in that something beyond prayer. God still needs people to go. There's still work to be done. There's still walls to be built. There's still people to be reached. God needs people to go. You remember Isaiah. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. The, you know, the seraphim flying around, you know, the six wing, covering their eyes and their feet. Two wings are flying, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and so on. And, And Nehemiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah becomes all of a sudden acutely aware of his sinfulness and he he comes apart, he falls apart in the presence of God because he's aware of how dirty he is. Behold, I'm a man of unclean lips who dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He realized he's no different. Isaiah was the prophet, by the way, who had just the chapter before was pronouncing woes upon all the people. Like, woe to you, woe to you. Like real solid prophet kind of stuff, right? And he gets in the presence of the Lord and it's woe to me. You're not ready to go for the Lord until you can say, woe is me. I'm a man, a woman of unclean lips. Meaning, obviously, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So my heart is sinful. That's what Isaiah was saying. And it's obvious in the presence of a holy God. But the angel of the Lord went, got a coal from the altar, touched it to Isaiah's lips and cleansed him. And all of a sudden, Isaiah's ears are attuned to the triune God who is talking within himself. And God says, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, who shall we send? Who will go for us, the Lord says within himself. And Isaiah hears it. His ears are open to the voice of God. And he says, here am I. Send me. Send me. Here am I. That's a, that's a statement of consecration. Lord, I'm setting my life apart to you and to your purposes. And I will go for you. Listen, God is still asking who will go for us. Do you you care? Do you care about the things that God cares about? Do you care about the, the continued destruction of human beings around this planet through so many different ways? Do you care about people who are lost without Jesus? Do you care about people who are being, you know, brought into sex trafficking by the thousands every single day? Do you care what God cares about? Do you care enough to ask? Do you care enough to weep? Do you care enough to pray? Do you care enough to get involved? Let's pray. Before you do a work through us, Lord, you do a work in us. There's no question about that. And to think of this Jewish man, Nehemiah, who'd never been to Jerusalem, who was elevated to being in, living in the king's palace, serving in the king and the queen's presence on a day-to-day basis, advising him, having an incredible life, wealthy and successful, known by all. And yet he hears about the condition of your people and the condition of your city. And he is gripped in a way that he knows that no position in the the greatest empire in the world at that point, no position in anywhere in the world is greater than answering the call that you have, Lord, 
on his life, that that's the greatest thing that anyone can do is just say yes to you. Yes, Lord, I will abandon this thing that's been such a blessing in my life and that I really enjoy in my life, but I know that there's something, Lord, that you've ordained me to do. It's a good work that you've prepared in advance for me. And Lord, I'm going to abandon this good thing, this safe thing, this blessing of a thing to follow you and do what you've called me to do, to rebuild that wall, to make a place where the people of God can worship you, where they can gather and glorify your name without fearing being attacked, where they can build up the city of God without fearing that there's gonna be marauders and thieves coming in and destroying things and stealing things. So Lord, do a work in us so that you can do a work through us. And Lord, there's probably some that are in a place where their, their ears are attuned and, and there's gonna be a word that comes to them. It might be just a sentence that somebody says or a question that somebody asks. And it's gonna so resonate in their heart. It's gonna be like a spiritual bomb going off in them where they know this is, this is it. What God is calling, to, calling me to do. Like Isaiah, all of a sudden hearing your voice with clarity. So may it be so, Lord, in this church, in this congregation, that we would be a bunch of Nehemiahs, a bunch of Isaiahs, a bunch of your people that are attuned to your voice, that are welcoming the work of God in our lives. Shape us, God. Transform us, God. Deepen us, God, so that you can use us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Jeff is going to come and uh, lead us in communion. And there's one, th another theme that's going to be before us through the book of Nehemiah. The wall is not just a physical wall that's being rebuilt but it's also representative of the walls of your life and my life. Are you in a place in your life where there are, there are breaches in the wall, where it's just the enemy can get in, and because of that, your, your life is filled with stress and misery, you're not walking in the joy of the Lord, and, and there, there's just a lot of turmoil in your life. It's because there's a breach in the wall. And it's time to rebuild. God wants to restore you. Listen, if there's sin in your life today that you've committed last week, last month, yesterday, today on the way here, whenever, confess it to the Lord. Just agree with God about it. And stand upon his promise that he is faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness.